Cryptocurrency, blockchain, Bitcoin. What is it all about? And why is it the fastest adopted technology since the internet? It was recently described as a new asset class and is now considered by some of the biggest financial institutions too big to ignore. In this episode, I try to decrypt what Bitcoin actually is and hopefully help you understand it a little bit better. Now remember, this episode is purely educational and should not be considered financial advice. And for full transparency, I actually hold Bitcoin as part of my personal portfolio, but I'll try to be objective. Now with that out of the way, let's get cracking. Right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Wealth Journal podcast with me, Jay Hardy. This is, of course, episode nine of the podcast. And I guess this is going to be a bit of a, a Bitcoin special. Um, my first special episode, if you like, where I'm really going to just delve into a little bit around what is what is Bitcoin? Where's it come from? So point one in my Wealth Journal this week is the history of money. So before diving straight into the world of crypto, I think it's important to look back at the history of money and how it's evolved over time. And this is important because it's due to some of these historical events, which has led to the, you know, to Bitcoin being created. And then, of course, other cryptocurrencies. Now, we can assume that the original form of currency was bartering, you know, the trading of goods and services. A farmer, for example, might trade wheat from shoe, for, for a pair of shoes from a shoemaker. The first official currency wasn't minted or created until around 600 BC. And then I think it was around 100 years later, if my memory serves me correctly, that um, the Chinese moved from coins to paper money. And although parts of Europe were still using metal coins way up until around about the 16th century, thanks to their quite hefty precious metal resources. And banks eventually started to use paper banknotes for for depositors and borrowers to carry around in place of metal coins. I guess if you think about it practically, carrying around all that coin wasn't easy, certainly if you had a lot of it. So it just became more practical to use paper money, which is pretty much like we like we are today. So people use these banknotes to, to buy goods and services. It operated much like currency today. However, it was issued by banks and not by governments. But then it led to governments eventually started to issuing their own IOUs. And however, crucially, these IOUs were backed by gold or silver. So in theory, you could walk into a bank with your IOU paper money and trade it and convert it directly into gold or silver of that value. Now, in the UK, back in 1931, the pound was taken off this gold standard and Thanks to President Nixon in the US around about 1971, the US also fully abandoned the gold standard. So therefore, the money, the pound, the dollar, was no longer backed by by gold. And that £20 or $20 was worth £20 or $20 because we all agreed between ourselves and because the government told us so, that it was worth £20 or $20. And this form of currency is now referred to as fiat money, money by government order. But in theory... 
let's take a pound coin, for example, at today's metal prices, it's probably worth around about 7p, maybe even a bit less. So the other 93p of value is actually just made up in our heads. This gave governments flexibility to manage their own monetary policies. They could print more dollars or pounds, however they saw fit, because it no longer needed to be pegged or backed by gold, which is, of course, a limited resource. And I guess in some ways, this has helped lead us to where we are today. The amount of gold in the world is largely unchanged, but the amounts of money and currency in the world has increased exponentially, hence, of course, inflation. And it's often big events that cause governments to print more money. The financial crisis of 2008, the COVID pandemic in 2020, and these tricks are designed to keep the credit markets moving and help support unemployment. Now, yes, money has evolved from coins to paper to plastic cards and now also digitally, but in 2008 came the next evolution and arguably the most disruptive. Enter Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Now, there are some, actually many in fact, that believe the fiat system, so our sort of current currency like the pound or dollar, is broken. They think that that giving governments free reign to manage this will lead to inflation or hyperinflation. And the government's only solution to any problem, like the financial crisis, whatever, is to print more money. And it was in response to the 2008 banking crisis that somebody called Satoshi Nakamoto wrote their white paper for a new peer-to-peer virtual currency called Bitcoin. And this utilised cryptography and was not controlled by governments, i.e. centralised, but controlled by the people and therefore decentralised. This leads me to point two in my wealth journal this week. What is Bitcoin? So we've established that Satoshi Nakamoto created the white paper for Bitcoin back in 2008. And a white paper is essentially setting forward a vision or a way to go in order to navigate a certain problem. And it was Nakamoto that wrote the code for Bitcoin. It's essentially a computer program to make it real. And you're probably thinking, who is Satoshi Nakamoto? Well, nobody knows. Nobody knows to this day who it is. But he or she is the creator of Bitcoin. And they actually hold quite a substantial portion of Bitcoin. I think if Satoshi Nakamoto was a real person, would be pretty much the 15th richest person on the planet, apparently, at today's Bitcoin prices. So, yeah, who knows? It could be a next-door neighbor. Now, the code produces both public and private keys, which enable people to send and receive Bitcoin. Your private key acts a little bit like a PIN number like a bank PIN number, and should be kept private. Coins are generated by computers running the Bitcoin program. This program uses computer power to solve complex math problems. And basically it's a race. And the computers solving these problems compete with each other on the Bitcoin network. Whoever solves it will earn its owner a bunch of brand new Bitcoins. And then the race for the next deposit of Bitcoins immediately starts again. This process is called mining. The mining process and the bitcoins issued through it are Nakamoto's clever way to get computers to join the network and offer up their computational power. For bitcoin to work as money, there must be a way for somebody to check that somebody paying in bitcoin has bitcoin to spend. Now when you pay with a bank card, the computers from Mastercard or Visa will verify the transactions, but bitcoin has no intermediaries, there's no owners. It has no computer of its own. Instead, the Bitcoin network relies on people volunteering their own computers to do the checks. 
And for doing these checks, their reward is, of course, Bitcoin. Now, these miners that secure the network, they are basically playing the role of the bank. They're being like the Visa or MasterCard. They process all the transactions and van- and they essentially validate that I sent Bitcoin to John and he sent it to Sarah and Sarah sent it to Luke and so on. The issue here is you're probably thinking, well, who are these miners? How can I trust them versus Visa or MasterCard? Well, the Bitcoin network is trustless. You don't have to trust a third party like a Visa or MasterCard. The beauty of the system is that you don't need to trust a single entity at all. And that's because of the sheer number of validators verifying each transaction. All these validators have to agree the transaction is legit before it goes through. And they're rewarded for processing correct transactions. Now, the transactions of Bitcoin are basically timestamped on a ledger, similar to a bank ledger. And these are organized in blocks. And it basically keeps track of who owns what. When I sent my Bitcoin to John, it's processed in a block. Another block is added when John sends it to Sarah, and then so on. Think of these blocks like Lego bricks slotting together on top of each other. And you can go back and look at each block. They create a chain of blocks. A blockchain. Basically a a public ledger. Now the key thing about the blockchain is that it's immutable. It cannot be changed. The Lego bricks are are fixed. And the more that are added on top of it make the previous ones even harder to separate. Which makes the Bitcoin network very secure and irreversible. Now there are numerous blockchains today. And they've exploded due to their increased transparency and traceability. And the fact that you don't need intermediaries. They're easy to track and they have a high level of security. It's very hard to commit fraud on the blockchain because all the validators have to agree that the transactions are legit, that you own the Bitcoin that you're sending to somebody else. It's pretty cool in that sense. I hope you're enjoying the episode. I just want to interrupt briefly to talk to you about a brand. I know what you're thinking. The Wealth Journal, has it got its first advertisement? Well, let me tell you, it has. It has. But this is an important one because the Wealth Journal will only talk about brands that it believes in, that I believe in. So, and also for this advertisement, I'm talking about a brand that has been founded by a couple close to my heart. It's people that I know. And of course, yes, this advertisement is free of charge. But I want to talk to you about a brand called Flostuff. Now, Flostuff is a brand that started through necessity. It was started by a family that were never satisfied with the messenger-style nappy bags or the over-branded-style backpacks for their two little children whilst they were growing up. And as a parent myself, I completely understand where they're coming from. Now, being an outdoorsy family, having something functional to carry all the things around that they needed was a must-have. After trialing most of the other brands on the market, they decided to create their own child and family friendly backpack and the Flostuff bag was born. So the brand basically aims to bring functional simplicity to all children and parents who love to get out there. And really what's cool about Flostuff is that their brand, their mission is to try and bring families together and encourage families to to get outside and explore the outdoors and do stuff do stuff outside together so it's a really cool brand the people behind it are really really great and of course this week they've gone live with their their black friday offers 
uh, where, they're, where they're offering £10 off for Black Friday. So log on to their website. It's flostuff.com. That's F-L-O-S-T-U-F-F.com. Flostuff.com. The offer ends on the 30th of November. And you will be supporting a new business. You'll be supporting some entrepreneurs that have just set up a new brand. They've only got one product available at the moment. So get out there, support Floss Stuff, and buy a backpack. Point three, Bitcoin pros and cons. So why has Bitcoin become so popular? So initially, the lure of Bitcoin was to be able to send payments to anyone securely, wherever they were in the globe, quickly and cheaply, and also fairly privately. Although you can see the public keys, you don't know necessarily who's behind them. And this appealed to a lot of people. Think if you was trying to send money um, to a relative on the other side of the earth. You know, the cost of that alone can be, can be pretty expensive. There'll be transaction fees. You have to go through an intermediary. But with Bitcoin, you don't have to. You can just send it through the Bitcoin network. And quickly, though, Bitcoin started to become less of a currency and more of an asset as people started to speculate on the price of Bitcoin and use it as an investment vehicle. And the main reason behind this is Bitcoin's economics, or tokenomics as they call them in the crypto world. Satoshi, quite cleverly, set a limit of 21 million Bitcoins, and this is fixed. It cannot be changed and will eventually, I guess because there's a limit of 21 million, Bitcoin will become inflation-free. We can't produce any more Bitcoins. So the diehard Bitcoiners out there believe that Bitcoin is basically the digital equivalent to gold. There's a fixed supply. It's a possible hedge or protection against inflation because it's inflation-free. And now it's being seen as more of a store of value or a store of wealth similar to that of gold. And they would argue that it's actually more practical to store your wealth in Bitcoin than it is gold. I mean, think about it. It's much easier to store and transport Bitcoin than it is to store and transport gold. It's also very liquid. It's very easy to buy and sell it. If I wanted to <laughs> take all my gold coins, not that I have any, um, you know, across borders, it's quite difficult. You tend to get quite a few questions as to why you're moving gold around. Bitcoin, very easy to do. And of course, it's made people very rich in a very short space of time. But of course, Bitcoin does come with its drawbacks. Back in the early days, you could run a personal computer to do the Bitcoin mining and probably probably pick up 50 Bitcoins in a few hours. But as more computers have joined the Bitcoin network, the computational puzzles that they have to solve get increasingly harder and therefore more computer power is needed to win the Bitcoins. And these days, with the price of Bitcoin around, around I don't know, $60,000 or £40,000, the mining for coins has become very competitive. So the power needed to win is massive. It's huge. You can no longer mine Bitcoins on your personal computer. Bitcoin mining is now a serious, serious business. There's entire mining farms that use huge amounts of energy and power. The Bitcoin network itself consumes 81.5 terawatt of hours annually. If that was a country, that would put it ahead of Bangladesh or Austria in terms of energy consumption. 
And in a world where we want to be more sustainable, energy usage is one of the biggest criticisms aimed at Bitcoin. You might remember earlier this year that Elon Musk said that um, Tesla was going to begin accepting payments for their cars in Bitcoin, only to reverse that decision a few months later, because obviously Tesla is a electric vehicle company that focuses on you know, trying to be more environmentally friendly for the planet. And they saw it as a contradiction that they were going to accept Bitcoin as payment when mining for Bitcoins used a huge amount of energy. And in some areas of the world, it wasn't clean energy either. So he reversed that decision and that caused the price of Bitcoin to drop and things like that. So that's where a lot of its criticism comes from. Another problem with Bitcoin is the fact that there is no middleman. Although that's a positive, bear with me. If you lose your private key and you can't ask your, you know, access your Bitcoin anymore, there's no password reset. It's, <laughs> it's gone. You can't get into your account. If you send Bitcoin to the wrong person, to the, the wrong um, key or account, you can't reverse the transaction. It gets locked in the blockchain. You'd have to rely on that person you've sent it to to I don't know, return it to you if, if they knew who you was. It's not like you can ring your bank up and say, oh, I've just sent uh, this money to the wrong person. Do you think you can reverse that transaction? You can't. There is no there is no bank. There's no middleman. And an interesting stat is that there's thought to be around about three to four million lost Bitcoins. I think at the time of recording, I have to double check this. There's just shy of around 19 million Bitcoins available. So there's only two million left to be mined. But if there's around three to four million lost Bitcoins, they're, they're pretty much lost forever. People have got Bitcoins stored in wallets or hard drives that they can no longer access. They've, they've either forgotten their private keys, they've forgotten their recovery phases to access them. They might have stored it on a hard drive that they've recently thrown out or it, you know it's just disappeared. Because in the early days, Bitcoin was worth hardly anything. It was worth nothing. I think one of the first transactions of Bitcoin was for a, a couple of uh, Papa John's pizzas and they paid around about 10,000 Bitcoins. I mean, that'd be worth like billions today. So in the early days, it wasn't worth a huge amount of money. People just sort of, yeah, just messed around with it. Whereas now, obviously, it's got huge value. And I know people have been searching in landfills for, for their old hard drives to try and find to try and find the Bitcoin. So it's, um, yeah, a bit of a nightmare, really. And against that creates this, you know, there's also a bit of a, a faff of storing Bitcoin, especially if you have a decent amount. Now, in theory, as long as your Bitcoin sort of online and connected to the network, there is the potential for a hack and people have lost Bitcoin through hacks, mm-hmm. whether the, when they've been stored on like exchanges or they've incorrectly um, shared their private keys, they've had their Bitcoin taken from them and they've been unable to get them back. So, yeah, there's not much you can do about that when that happens. And it's not like, um, you know, your credit card where maybe the credit card provider will will refund you the, the balance. So although Bitcoin is really easy to buy these days, to store it and protect it is a little bit more involved and complicated. And I believe this remains one of the challenges of the crypto industry and something that could restrict mass adoption. But I'm sure there's solutions that are being worked on to try and make it a little bit easier and more secure over time. The final point in my wealth journal this week is around buying Bitcoin. 
So let's say you've decided now that you want to start buying Bitcoin. Because of the security issues around Bitcoin, the first thing I'd recommend you do before you start buying Bitcoin is to set up a brand new email address. Keep anything that's Bitcoin or crypto related on a separate email address, one that you've never used before with a password that you've never used before and try and keep everything separate. I'm sure you've had an email address that you've been using since your days at high school that you've signed up to multiple newsletters and things like that. It's time to probably get a new one. One email service I would recommend is one called Proton Email. They're based out of Switzerland and they use encrypted email. It's very secure. So get a new email address before you start signing into exchanges. Once you've done that, there are a variety of different exchanges you can buy crypto from. The most obvious one and probably the most popular one is Coinbase. They've got a really useful, sort of really easy to use app and um, they have quite a lot of educational content on there. The other one, which I, I also use, is one called SwissBorg. The problem with Coinbase is that they tend to have quite high fees. SwissBorg, for me, actually has much lower fees. So I also use them. And then you've got other sort of bigger exchanges like Binance, FTX. And I would say these are a little bit more involved for more sophisticated and serious investors. But they also have a wider range of cryptocurrencies on offer if you're into that sort of thing. But of course, the best way is have a look at the different exchanges and find one that works for you. Now, I guess the final, final point in the Wealth Journal this week is what are my thoughts on Bitcoin, crypto, blockchain technology? I'm sure you're all dying to find out. Well, I think I do tend to sit on the fence quite a bit on the Wealth Journal podcast and I try and uh, cover my ass with, um, you know, this is not financial advice. But I'll be honest, and this isn't, of course, a recommendation for you to buy or sell or anything. But for me, over the last few months, I've become, I would say, very optimistic and bullish around not just Bitcoin, but the whole world of, of crypto and blockchain technology and the benefits it can have to a huge range of different industries and applications. So although I've started investing in Bitcoin, I have also acquired some of the other alternative coins or altcoins, basically anything that came after Bitcoin. So I'm very I'm very pro crypto. And initially I started out with my portfolio around about the 10% mark. And I think when I revealed my portfolio a couple of weeks back, crypto was around about 25%. And I'd say it's maybe increased ever so slightly recently as well. So I think the Wealth Journal is all about me sharing my learnings and then also and also sharing what actions I've been taking from those learnings. And I think what I'll probably tend, I'll try and do over the next few weeks is share even more about what I've learned about the, the crypto space, the crypto world, some of the different projects, some of the different tokens that are centered around the world of crypto. Because it's been through going on that research journey that has made me more bullish in the space. I think we are at a potential new frontier for both technological advancements and just a different way of how the web and internet will develop over time. So I am very excited about the space. I do still think it's very, very early days. And one, I guess one negative that I didn't cover previously on, on the you know wise 
you know, a negative of Bitcoin has been the volatility. The crypto market has been incredibly volatile. It moves up and down. And I think if I'd have um, started investing in crypto quite early on before I really developed my investment mindset and my appetite for risk, I probably would have been scared away from it quite quickly because you can put money into crypto and within the next day, it's either disappeared or it's reduced by a significant amount. But obviously, as I've explained over the years, I've become more comfortable with risk. I know that when markets go down, they can also eventually go up. And I very much see crypto for me as a as a, a long-term investment play, you know, a, a long-term time horizon. All the crypto I've bought, I've never actually sold. So I'm holding my crypto or hodling, as they call it. Uh, I might actually do a crypto... Um, a crypto podcast where I go through some of the terminology and what it all means because yeah that stuff can uh, is a podcast in itself but yeah I'm holding all the crypto that I've that I've ever bought I do believe I do believe the space is exciting again like I said it's it's very much early days and I think there's there's a huge amount of opportunities there there's a huge amount of opportunity potentially on the upside but we just don't know we don't know we don't know which which I guess crypto projects will end up being the most popular, which ones will end up succeeding. There's also the risk of regulation. You know, it's fairly unregulated space, and I know that's looking to change. And of course, there's the environmental concerns. There's certain countries' views on crypto. So I know China's banned it. I think there's been talk about India recently as well that I've seen today. So there is, of course, uncertainty in the space, which why it doesn't, at this stage, doesn't form 100% of my portfolio. But there's people out there where it does. And sometimes to to really you know grow your wealth investors don't always diversify the portfolios they sometimes invest with conviction and there's many investors out there that are fully behind crypto um as a as an investment that's my view on it um you might agree with me you might disagree with me you might think i'm crazy um but it's certainly changed over time the one thing i would highly recommend is of course to do your own research it's I guess without doing quite in-depth and frequent research in the crypto space, I wouldn't have been able to formulate these these opinions I have now. Um, and I'm, you know, I understand where the argument comes from that crypto is, you know, it's not built on anything. Gold has its use cases. Crypto doesn't. You know, gold you can melt it down and create necklaces. Crypto, it's just digital. I get that. I get that. But we're moving into a digital age. We're already in a digital age. So for me, I've been very sort of bullish and optimistic around the space. And uh, I would just encourage you guys to to take some time, learn about it, see what you think, understand some of the, some of the different um, projects that are out there, some of the different um, opinions on the space. Um, I also tend to look at some of the, I guess, anti-Bitcoin opinions as well, because I think that's important to to have a look at the other side and consider their points of view. But for me at this stage, I'm very pro-crypto. So there we go. I've jumped off the fence and I've picked a side. So how about that? There we go. He's done nine podcasts, a couple of social media posts, and he suddenly thinks he's a thought leader. My word. (laughs) Of course, I don't think I'm a thought leader. That, That was a joke. That was a joke. I do think this episode has been a little bit dry. You know, we have covered crypto into in, in a bit of detail and I appreciate a lot of people probably think it's 
one of the most boring topics out there. But if you've stuck with me for nine episodes, then obviously you're interested in growing your wealth. And crypto's made a lot of people rich. So, yeah, it's a viable tool out there. It exists for us to invest in. So it's important that the Wealth Journal explores these things and shares my or shares the learnings. So I guess that's it for episode nine. Of course, thank you very much for listening if you've stuck with it for this long. Speaking of social media and me, of course, being a thought leader nowadays, um, <laughs> I'm going to try and be a little bit more active on social, particularly Instagram. So you can find me on Instagram, jhardytwj or jhardythewealthjournal. I'm sure I'll pop up. I'm going to try and use Instagram to just try and answer questions that I've been getting through the week from people. It tends to be when I submit a podcast, I get quite a lot of direct messages, questions, and if somebody's thinking about something, then I'm sure everybody else is too. So I'm going to just try and respond to some of them questions on Instagram. So give me give me a follow. And um, I'm going to start trying to just putting out a little bit, little bit more content, a few more quotes, things that I'm learning maybe in the week uh, before I get to record a podcast. So yeah, be sure to follow that. I've got... Um, yeah, I think my following is in the hundreds these days. So check out that Instagram and give me a give me a follow. Okay, well that's it. That's everything for episode nine, and I will see you next week. <laughs>